2: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. How are you on this crisp and lovely fall afternoon?
0: Oh, feeling groovy, Kaiser. If, if I, I may
2: be anachronistic. 29 was the, 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 the PM, PM 2.5 reading as we had coffee earlier. Yeah. Uh,
0: lovely. The same age as the woman sitting next to us, I think. <laughs> I wish.
2: Uh, anyway uh, I have a question for you Dave if you had to come up with a mission statement for this little podcast of ours, for the cynical podcast what, 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 what would you what would you how would you encapsulate it
0: hmm well China is a very complex place right uh, so I suppose we try to provide uh, some framing for certain events so that people can have a better understanding maybe point focus in on certain things that might be useful but I, I think maybe your presence here uh, uh, makes its function more to sort of go against some prevailing narratives that we see. Sure, yeah. I mean, I definitely
2: want to make at least people aware of the narratives that are in place. I mean, both Chinese narratives and, and uh, you know, those that dominate in mostly English-speaking countries where right. so yes, many of our right. listeners are... Some which may be uh, implicit. Right. Uh, yeah. I think the, the the length and the format and the fairly kind of focused... Focus of the show, focus, the narrow focus <laughs> of the of the show allow for unpacking of more complicated issues. Yeah, so I right. mean, uh, maybe it's like our mission statement is to move listeners toward a, a both broader and deeper understanding of China, and looking not only at events as they unfold, but also the historical and cultural context out of which they grow. Right. Right. So. With that in mind, I think uh, we're delighted to welcome to the show today Foka Obama, who is a veteran Dutch journalist with their Volkskrant, who uh, is a very popular newspaper in the Netherlands. Uh, he's the author of the brand new book, China and the West, Hope and Fear in the Age of Asia, which I think was undertaken very much in the spirit of this podcast, uh, many of the same, same goal. So Foca, welcome to Seneca and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you very much.
2: So would you agree this is this is the spirit of in, in which the book was undertaken uh
1: yes absolutely uh, the origins of the book uh, are in be- go back to two thousand and eight mm-hmm. when I first visited China and I was just impressed by the dynamism and the energy of the place and um, it's compared uh positively uh, with um, my own country and Europe in general where the uh, credit crisis just had started and uh, pessimism was uh, uh, largely spread and also a very negative attitude towards China. Um, You know, China was going to take over Europe and uh, was going to dominate the world and this would be a very bad thing. And I thought, you know, we, we need a sort of Cool down and and think uh, s- straightforwardly about you know what what is exactly the impact of China the rise of China which is of course the the main event of this uh, century uh, on our part of the world and so I tried uh, a balanced approach in this book and in that sense it's uh, it's it's like uh, your show. Oh great!
2: Um, I, I have to admit that uh, I don't read any languages besides English and Chinese so I don't really think that i'm 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 uh, in a position to speak on what the the narratives are that dominate european coverage i don't read german or or french or italian or spanish or any or, or for that matter dutch of course uh i mean google translate only takes you so far um what, how would you characterize? You said you know they're they're coming for us. They're uh, they're they're going to to uh, you know deprive us of economic opportunities. What what are some of the other narratives that you think dominate in discussions in in, in European media?
1: Well, I, I think uh, underlying most stories is is a, a sense of fear for China, and uh, I mean it goes back to this this old yellow peril uh, view of China, you know, there's 1.3 billion people and uh, w- when they are moving towards us, you know, what's going to happen to us? Um, and and uh, you see that in every story, for instance, on, on takeovers, uh, you know, there has to be only one single Chinese businessman taking over a Dutch uh, soccer club and then uh, everybody starts uh, to get a little uh, shaky about <laughs> it. And uh, it, it's completely exaggerated, you know. If there is activity of uh, China in uh, the Rotterdam uh, harbor, then then it's the same thing. Or if uh, Chinese take over French uh, wine chateaus, you know. Yeah, you, which they, so a l-
2: large part of your book is devoted to that. That you reported out of Bordeaux, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's a nice place to be. So <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But uh, as a reporter, uh, it's kind of interesting that you you chose this this stance or this focus for the book because. It, it seems to me a lot of reporters, uh, some of the ones that we might go against their prevailing narratives here on the show, uh, are more engaged in sort of producing articles that go with the narrative, because that's how they get published, and that makes their editors happy. Yeah. But you, you in the book, and you seem to be expressing a uh, feeling that y- you felt pushback against what the, another narrative you were trying to pre- present in the Dutch press, right?
1: Yes, well, the, the thing is, I, I had this opportunity of having a sabbatical year, and then... You have the also the opportunity to stand back a little from what you're doing day in daily day, life, yeah, yeah. and and so I could see, you know, the way Western media were behaving. Uh, and th- I have to uh, emphasize, it's not only against uh, China. This, this uh-huh. the, you know, it's looking for f- for problems and for conflicts, which is general, I think, to uh, w- Western media. And uh, I mean, to have critical journalism is of course very important, but. I, for a change I also was interested in being more constructive and um, uh, so that that's why I also started to criticize my own uh, fellow journalists mm-hmm. hmm. can I ask one other question of course about
0: in the since I assume I always assume that the European discourse is pretty much the same as the Anglophone discourse but maybe maybe not one phenomenon that we have that we talk a lot, a lot about are, are these division into two Two parties or two camps of what we call dragon slayers and panda huggers, and we have these certain authors that we could list who are fall into one or the other category. Yeah. And it's also in academia because you could list the same sort of professors who speak on all the podcasts and things. Uh, I won't name names right now, but do you have the same phenomenon there in academia as well as journalism? or
1: Yes, I think you you can make that uh, distinction. And uh while my effort is. N- Trying not to be in one of the, these right. categories and and stay uh, as Steadily objective neutral, uh, yeah. as as uh, much as possible. Uh, I have to admit, nowadays I'm interviewed uh, because of my book by Chinese journalists, and I'm giving sour and sweet. Commands on both China and the West, and it, they, they like sweet and sour. Yeah, here. I was going <laughs> to say Yeah, 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 but the, they they tend to a tasty cuisine. They they tend to take uh, the, the the sweet remarks on China and the sour remarks on the West, and that is then you don't get the whole picture.
2: So it's always a danger, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah it's you're framing, gonna, yeah. Anything that you say is going to be cherry picked by the Chinese media, and, and they'll, yeah, they'll be but very I mean that,
1: that that's that's of course something we in the West do as well. I mean uh, that that's not really different. The difference is of course that behind the Chinese journalists there is the t- Chinese state right now you
2: use this word uh, this phrase the West uh, to designate presumably a a set of nations that have a shared set of political and maybe economic norms and uh, it's something that I, I very studiedly avoid using. I, I don't. I tend not to deploy the word "the West" or the phrase "the West." Uh, you don't experience any kind of pushback against this idea that that there is a West. I mean, you know, you, you, you try using it uh, sometime in a group of of, of of academics or in a group of journalists. If you talk about the Western media, the, the tackles are immediately up. I yeah.
1: Mean, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's a difficult argument. I mean. Can you talk about China then? You know because well, China, China, I mean, China, China is a China, definable China, nation state. I yes, guess. okay. But and, and can you talk about Europe? Because Europe is also you know we are twenty nine nations and right. it's, it's, it's very divided. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, in fact, it, the, the the book originally was called uh, China and Europe. Mm. Um, but my. English publisher, they didn't like very much Europe in the title of the book, Uh uh, for commercial reasons. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) it has been brought into China and the West, and and, uh, that's the main reason I speak of the West. Okay.
0: okay. I I think also, some a journalist like Foka is to be forgiven because the, the this is a category the Chinese themselves tend to deal with them much more than even we do right so and Chinese that's usually and, when you encounter the the the, the hackle raised exactly like and as we mentioned over lunch some Chinese even considered Jap- Japan to be part of the West
1: yeah yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I think there's a, yeah, there's an argument to be made for that it yeah. is after all a liberal democratic uh, you know
2: uh, uh, capitalist state. Uh, but let's um I, w- I want to understand better who the reading uh, the intended reading audience of this is who do you imagine is going to see this book and 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 want to buy it
1: yeah well it's it's not meant for specialists first, right. of, first of all it's the general public it's it's basically the kind of public i'm used to write, writing for this this newspaper
2: you have it in dutch as well?
1: well yes there is a 2013 edition which is called China and Europe okay and, oh, okay. and, and oh, so, I see. so um, it's It's a very broad public. Everybody who's asking the question, You know what does this rise of China mean uh, for us? Mm-hmm. and And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's also interesting for Chinese people because it gives you an idea of how we in the West or Europe? Think Let's go ahead it. and use the
2: West for now. I mean, <laughs> we decided that that's what we're going to be comfortable. With. Yeah, you set out to do something I think this is very ambitious and, and very praiseworthy. Uh, you're not just trying to build a more nuanced understanding of, of of China realities here on the ground, but also you want to urge readers toward uh, a better awareness of their own prejudices, their own biases. What you call Pride and Prejudice in the book, right? Which I think is an interesting use of the phrase. The whole first chapter that you talk about, um, reckoning with your own prejudices... Mm-hmm. Your own, you know, pride in your European systems, the institutions, and, and the values you have as a Western European. Um, you you also talk about a kind of sudden epiphany that you have while attending an otherwise very boring conference in Brussels. And yet 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 another one of these when a cranky Chinese professor just starts in on a rant. Was that real? I and mean, Was that a narrative device, or was that a real awakening moment for you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, well, that that was a real awakening moment, and. It- I remember that that moment very uh, um clearly, vividly, (laughs) because um, everybody watching him, and it it was a mixture of of, uh, European uh, and and Chinese specialists. They they were a bit confused, because he was so uh, outspoken and negative on Europe, which is, of course, well, as we felt it, an (coughs) un-Chinese way of behaving. Mm-hmm. which is always diplomatic and polite and you know uh, hoping for mutual understanding and win-win situations etc and he was completely against that so uh, so uh, for me as a beginner in, in in china knowledge it was quite astonishing to see someone so outspoken and negative about uh, europe so and this was
2: in what year, Was this what year was this
1: this, this was uh, 2009 or something. Okay.
2: Like I mean, because, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people would say that there was a, a major change in the year 2008, that mm-hmm. 2008 really marked the watershed. And there was this, you know, very kind of heavily freighted symbolic moment. It, you know, the Beijing Olympics happen You know, they opened on August 8th. They, they, and then just literally three weeks after the closing, of, of the closing ceremony of the Beijing Games, it was the Lehman Brothers collapse absolutely right, yeah. and so uh, these were two kind of you know it was yeah. a, a, a passing of the torch maybe in, in the minds of some people, and that you 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 suddenly heard a lot more of that kind of swagger, uh, that that uh, assertiveness, that almost you know uh, pugnaciousness coming coming out of China. Would you would you agree that that was kind of a an inflection point?
1: I absolutely agree, and I think at that point uh, Chinese authorities uh, really thought. You know, we we are the future, and and uh, look at uh, the West—they uh, are going down the drain. And uh, I mean, I have to be honest: we in the West thought the same. You know, we we thought, d- you know, with the credit crisis. I mean, we—it d- was so unpredictable what would happen. So uh, we somehow lost our confidence uh, then. Mm. I mm-hmm. think uh, events afterwards, you know, make clear that the picture is not that uh, black and white. Right, of course not. Uh, it seems to me,
0: and the larger, even pre uh, two thousand and eight, the, the the arc of this has been from China, from B, China thinking of itself as as a country or a civilization state or whatever that was joining the geopolitical order and becoming a part of it and a and a an equal or even you know superior player to a very different uh, sort of mentality that we have now under Xi Jinping, which is we're not just joining the, the geopolitical order. We are creating our own new geopolitical order, you know, yes. we're creating a, you know, one belt, one road. We're we're, s- we're bypassing the geopolitical order and, and making, forging a new model, that, you know, this, this this idea of a new model. Do you see that as part of the, you know, w- w- it's at least a sub- subtext for the Chinese uh, focus of what's going on? Yeah.
1: Right yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting. We in the West have been asking for a responsible stakeholder all the time and the right. w- a more active uh, attitude of China. So, now we get it. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, um, w- we are, you know, not sure whether this is what we asked for. And uh <coughs> I think AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, is a very interesting example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we're going
2: to show on that. It's uh,
1: Yeah, yes. where, where, where um, uh, I think China did a diplomatically a very interesting uh, move. And the U.S. Uh, failed to understand uh, the the attractiveness of the Chinese proposition. Um, at the same time, you should not exaggerate the importance of the AIIB. I mean, geopolitically, there is also, of course, uh, the Pacific, and I think in that issue, China is not moving so smartly as uh, they did on the AIIB.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, much of your book is is concerned with these kind of Dueling senses of superiority, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a, a theme that that threads through through um, of, two, of two civilizations, really. Um, each kind of supposing a kind of exceptionalism for itself. Uh, so there's this young friend of mine here, a guy named Greg Blandino. Uh, he works for an, on an internet company here, and uh, he once commented, and I thought it was really, really kind of you know, preternaturally wise to say that he was a- answering a question on Quora about you know which culture is more you know, has a greater sense of superiority. And he he said that, you know, the U.S. and China are both really big on, on exceptionalism. I mean, he wasn't talking about the West. He was talking about the United States in particular, uh, but of, of very different kinds of exceptionalism. American exceptionalism claims that its values are universal, that it should be the norm and the form for the entirety of the world. While China's exceptionalism is rooted in a very different belief, one that's perhaps equally arrogant, that China's culture, China's values are unique, are inimitable,
1: and unexportable,
2: and, and not exportable. Right. Yeah. I mean, w- what do you think of this idea? I mean, is this something that you you encountered that might resonate with you?
1: Yeah, I I, I think uh, I agree, and and uh, the U.S. is is uh, absolutely convinced of its of, of, of the of the value, values, and of course, me as a European, I share these values uh, as well, but. Uh, The U.S. is just sending out this signal all the time that this is the case. And and, uh, we we are less in that habit. Europeans, Uh, you Europeans are less, yes. Yeah, yeah. in Europe. Um, And and, uh, China, I think the interesting thing is it's it's, it's a civilization on its own. But um, what comes with this feeling of Superiority is also a feeling of inferiority. Yeah, um, you, you talk
2: about that a lot. Also, I mean, the, I, I remember in in particular, you were talking about somebody who's studying Chinese communities in Europe, and says that they were very much characterized by this simultaneous superiority complex and inferiority complex
1: right? exactly exactly and i I think if you have to understand the the Chinese mindset I mean these two notions have come into play and and uh, you see that, that this inferiority complex which is of course driven by the the century of humiliation in the 19th century um, is is uh, very much there and it also makes you know for a kind of feeling of revenge and want to to mm-hmm. do better. It's than... our turn again,
2: right? Yeah,
1: this
2: yeah. this time it's our turn. Yeah. Yeah, I mean uh one of the what are the the senses of superiority in those communities you were talking about, you know, the the work ethic for example, ladies, right? Um, this is something I remember, you know, our, our our co-host Jeremy who unfortunately couldn't join us right now was um he's always talking about how uh, uh, you know, he's he's sort of shocked at, at going to Europe and businesses that close at five p m uh or that close on weekends or on you know in in southern Europe, especially on every goddamn feast day for the the, 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 the catholic church has and, yeah. and the, you can can 't how can they compete? you go to China, and banks are open on weekends, and business many businesses are twenty four hours, yeah. and, and nobody would think of them. Yeah, it's.
1: But but what, what I would like to point out then is that the when you look at the hour productivity, so the productivity per worked hour in European countries is far higher. Far higher, yes, than absolutely. Than in China, so maybe China should come a bit more. Oh, I uh, agree. Pin As a uh, working plane stiff, plane. I absolutely <laughs> agree. More <laughs>
2: vacation time, I mean, more work-life balance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um. The another theme that that's that's I think uh, an important one. That we should we should maybe spend some time unpacking. Um. You know, you look like you said at that 19th century, mainly ma- mainly at this sort of uh, you know, narrative of humiliation at the hands of imperial powers that China suffered for for so long. And something I think is like familiar to the point of banality to China watchers now history is obviously uh very important toward an understanding of contemporary Chinese attitudes, but um in your book, you also urge people, like I said, to to appreciate their own historical legacy, their own uh privileges, as you say, uh, how it, it shapes the lens through which they view. China. So w- what are, do you see as the main elements of, of the Western historical experience that you think have created these kinds of distortions when they view China? What are the the, the, the chapters in... Or where's the lack of awareness? I certainly yeah, have ideas. Well, I, I, the,
1: it, yeah, you have to point out the lack of awareness, right. most of all. I mean, um, for instance, the, the century of humiliation, I I think that the average uh, European uh, you know, they don't know what you're talking about. Mm. They, they, they they completely forgot about this black chapter mm-hmm. of uh, European colonialism in China, whereas here it is very much a vivid thing. But we, we ignore it and we basically reduce China to, you know, an opportunity to reach a big market uh, for companies. Interesting. Uh, but there is very very little uh, intellectual curiosity towards, you know, the, the, the Chinese culture, Chinese political system broader, you know, it's, it's it's always simplified. For instance the political system, we simplify it to <coughs> especially authoritarian
2: especially human rights violators. Who yeah,
1: but, but, but also uh, given the, the economic success of China uh, you know, of an effective uh, way of dealing with the economy uh, whereas if you're closer to China and, and you're Inside it, you know that there is a real problem of, you know, the way the Chinese authorities are dealing with their economy and that there should be fundamental change. But when you're really far back, you know, you think, OK, these guys, they have 10 percent growth, 7 percent growth. That's fantastic. You know, that's so, so it's, it's very simplified. It might
0: be worth just mentioning the thing that might be a cliche by now is Susan Shirk's uh, observation when she came out with her book China, a fragile superpower. Mm-hmm. That when she told her, her uh, American friends the title of her book, they, they said, Fragile? Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. how, how is it fragile? And when yeah. she told her Chinese friends the title, they said, Superpower? <laughs> we? A superpower? No. <laughs> Wait, right. I mean, Although that it would be very different now. It would be very different now. I think if you were to
2: talk to people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right now the narrative is about Chinese fragility. You look look at the, the the papers; they're full of stories about the crack up, about you know the, the economic disorder. Oh, Same becoming... in the West that there is a, a mention. That's of right, but China. no, and also if you talk to Chinese now, well, they always uh, about, have that.
0: That's the point; they always thought of themselves as fragile.
2: No, no, I'm talking what? about I'm talking about in the West. The narrative is about, oh, that's about. Yeah, yeah, right. you know, economic decline in China, right. about mm-hmm. the end of this period of growth. You know, I mean, yes, Gordon right, Chang yes. is riding high in the saddle again, and I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of this declinist narrative now being applied to China, right. and conversely uh, a, a very uh, strong sense among a lot of chinese if you talk to them in the wake of the of the parade they can now confidently pronounce yep superpower <laughs> i mean uh, so it's it's, yes, it's, it's, it's a, amazing she's the
0: term how of a new a new uh, a new? Well, that, that's different. What's the, that's, phrase, what's the English phrase? It's, uh, right, uh, new uh, new form of superpower relation. A
1: new a new major a new great, great power right, right, right. major power relationship. A new form, yeah, but you know, of, you know
2: this is this is this formulation to basically. Yeah. I mean, this is addressed directly to the this, 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 the the Thucydides trap. God, that's hard. The Thucydides, the Thucydides, th- <laughs> the Thucydides, Thucydides tra- trap. Yeah. Right, uh, you know this idea that that a rising. Uh, power must necessarily disrupt an existing order, and right. it will lead inevitably to conflict. And you know, m- people have looked at at rising powers over the the history of of humanity since the time of you know the Peloponnesian War, right. and have I think in in most instances seen that there has been conflict. And so, I mean, yeah, this but, is but very clearly you know yeah, intended to steer. Clear I, I, I think
1: you have to uh, consider in that case the fact that we have nuclear capacities on both sides That's right. uh, That's right. and and that makes it quite different uh, from all these uh, yeah. historic examples.
0: Mm-hmm. There's, there's a because of this thing we mentioned the, the different the notion of chinese exceptionalism that the language they will tend to use we tend to see this as a threat because as as kaiser said we te- we tend to think of our trajectory as being universal that these the values that we're moving towards china says no you know we're we're exceptional and that makes it very easy for them to say no, there's no conflict here. There's no Thucydides trap. This is a win-win situation. We respect each other. We have mutual respect. We go our way. You go your way, and there's no problem. We just do what we can do in in, in conjunction with right. each other. Right?
2: Different ideas of modernity, different
0: yeah, paths to right. modernity. But do you think? But do you think the problem is that the, the we hear that in the West, but but nobody buys it? Well, I mean, if, if, <laughs> do, I mean, it can is it reasonable to buy it, or are they just being duplicitous? They they actually do want the same thing we do, which is. Well, become I the next big big superpower, right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 a bit difficult to uh, state that there is no conflict if you look at the Pacific, where, right. I mean, there is clearly a conflict of interest. I mean, the big question is... The South China Sea, East China Sea, the, the, the big question is, how can you solve it? And China is trying to solve it by changing the facts on the ground mm-hmm. uh, silently while uh, stating uh, the, there is a peaceful rise. But I think that that's not a very... Clever strategy if you look at the reaction of neighboring countries who, who seek right. their uh, military alliance with, uh, with the US more and more.
0: Do you believe they see it differently, really? Or do you think they're just lying? I mean, they, they, they claim they see... They s- who can really th- second they, guess yeah. that? I don't know. I, I mean, it's a serious question. Do you think that they really believe their historical account of, of, of Chinese terror? Well, I mean... The do they really Do they really believe that or not, do you think?
1: I, I think it's it's just a very big power seeking more power in the world and, and I think that th- that is the way you have to analyze it um, and then there is of course a lot of rhetoric I mean if you listen to Xi Jinping in the United Nations you know it's it's all peaceful and coexistence and and, right. and, and very nice but I mean that's diplomacy
2: right so when, on, on the subject of history I mean there's uh, there's an idea that's been really kind of Formulating in in my mind for for quite some time, um, I'm also in the business of trying to explain, uh, or not, not not to explain so much as to urge people toward a more informed empathy about trying to to be able to put yourself in those shoes. And you know, as as you, as somebody who who uh, holds Western values, I, I very much do. I'm you know as much a creature of the Enlightenment as uh, you know a, a, a non. Uh, Asian American as a white American, I, we, we're, I, I embrace those values. I, I like you know secular democracy. Uh, I like all the values of the Enlightenment. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, the 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 thing about empathy as a position is that you do not need to abdicate those values in order to understand how somebody else might may see the world that's that's the, the great thing I, I do do not uh, do not abate or surrender those values that i hold so dearly when i when i do that it doesn't and, collapse into relativism right it doesn't collapse immediately into relativism so uh but one thing that, that that's become more and more obvious to me is that it's not just a lack of understanding on the part of europeans and, and north americans about china's history It's a lack of understanding of their own history. I think that that, that what people forget, what they they, they fail to recognize, is the extent to which the values that we all hold are the product of an historic. A historical process that is not universal that is actually very quite quite particular that only happened in that one far western jagged little peninsula sticking off the eurasian landmass, and only happened in certain countries of that i mean it didn't happen in the iberian peninsula it only it happened in france and in england and in the netherlands and uh greece. you know it, no no not greece it didn't happen I mean, it, it, it didn't ha- it happened only you know in, in mostly in the protestant I'm talking about the Enlightenment. I'm talking about the Reformation, and you know, I'm talking about what what happened.
1: But you're not talking about human rights here.
2: I, I'm no I, I ultimately am. I ultimately am because human rights. You know, when was when when what did the Declaration of the Rights of Man come? Out? I mean, that this this was something that very much was a product of the Enlightenment, and also the pro- now it happens that I I think that those values ultimately should be. I have a normative field should be should be universally. And they have a, an
1: appeal, uh, they, universal.
2: I do believe that they oh. they 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 do, but uh, as to how to get there, mm-hmm. we have to understand that you know we have come in the West, and this is this is really what I'm I'm getting to. We have come in the West to. You know, hold even more closely this idea that there is a goal-directed history. It's it's like the way that a lot of people think about evolution. Uh, we're 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 not clear on the concept. We think that you know eyes, for example, were in in inevitable uh, evolutionary right. development that they ought to have been that way. No, th- that's not how evolution works. That's not how history works. There isn't a an t- in, in, inherent a teleology. teleology. There isn't mm-hmm. a goal-directedness goal-directed- mm-hmm. baked into it. I think. Think rather, uh, we stumbled on something through uh, a, a lot of historical, you know, difficulties and 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 a lot of blood left on on, on the road to this. But um, there are a lot of different roads that that could have been chosen. The one that that, that the West walked ended up in a terrific place. I mean, I think uh, with a very very g- a great set of values, great set of political institutions, a great set of of economic ideas. Uh, but these are not the norm for the entire world and to expect that the rest of the world can now cross that historical chasm with great ease is just simply unrealistic. And we need to think about getting from A to B and not, you know, I mean, you know, in, 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 in a way that doesn't leave a lot of blood on the road.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's for sure that, uh, for instance, the concept of democracy is not bought everywhere. For, uh, if, if you take Iraq, uh, the US has tried to impose it. It didn't work. Uh, at the same time, I think there is this universal appeal. If you ask uh, a Chinese peasant if, whether he wants democracy, I mean, there's so much propaganda against democracy that you probably would say no. But if you ask him, you know, do you want to have a say about uh, what is going on in your village? Uh, he would say yes. So which, right. so which is the w- right. w- which, which comes which down has. to democracy. Yeah, I was
0: you know I was looking through your the index to your or the chapters for your book, and then just out of curiosity, I was looking through the index of a book by Jiang Weiwei, which I know uh, Kaiser hates, but he's this <laughs> strident nationalist writer. You know, writes uh, in English. I mean, he's published in, translated into English. I was looking at his index, and whereas hates not not a sufficient word, hates huh? not like a su- lowest <laughs> despises <laughs> anyway, um, and and to to, to see. How, what kinds of framing or what kind of focus is, is in the index? It's all on what I think was the Chinese are more interested in, not human rights, but on GDP, on development, on bringing people out of poverty, on mm. economic success, on economic progress. False dichotomy. False dichotomy. But that is their focus, right? If, if, you, if you mention human rights, they will mention we brought 500 million people out of poverty, right? Absolutely. Is that, yeah. But that's a valid, uh, at least that's a valid, uh, it may not be uh, binary that one can't come without the other. But still, it's a, it's a, at this stage it's of historical a, development, it's a valid po- point. It's, right?
1: it's a very valid point. I mean, and and I think there is not maybe not enough recognition of that in in, in Western countries. You know that that if you look at who, who has contributed most towards fighting poverty in the world, that that is for sure it's China. Right. You take China out of the equation, the poverty levels remain flat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost. Yes, yeah. yes. So so um, I totally agree with that. But then. Uh, social, economic, human rights, as you, you mentioned, are, are very important. But it wouldn't mean that the political and the individual rights are not important. So, and I
2: think this is kind of the nub of your book. Like, I mean, if I may, just like, uh, uh, maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I think that you see like a a, a, a dyad between, on the one hand, a kind of relativist approach. Uh, there, there are people that you talk to, you know, like Schmidt, for example, uh, and then uh, uh, somebody else who is quite, kind of a universalist. And your inner dialogue through this book is about how do we engage China on the issue of human rights? That's a, That's a lot of a lot of what you, you end up talking about. I mean, where you seem to be most conflicted in the book is in this, right?
1: Well, where where I'm. Uh, still struggling with and as, as we and w- ought w- to be w- right. w- which I think is is, is, is also you know it, it f- from an analytical point of view very different difficult to 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 come up with some kind of uh, solution is this point and um, well if, if you take it to the political level, we have these politicians who go to china uh, european politicians they they express. Things about human rights behind closed curtains. That's what they tell us, and we have to believe them. But um, we never see any results. The other way around, if, if they do it openly and, you know, the Chinese lose face, it, it might have an adverse impact on, for instance, cases of political prisoners they come up for, uh, as, um, you know, Chinese authorities really don't like uh, losing face in, mm. in, in public. So so what is the right approach? You know, it's What's
2: the right yardstick? What's the right measurement? I mean, is it efficacy? Is it, is it what actually changes? Or is it, it you know uh, being consistent with our own values, which, which is more important? Or is this, again, a false dichotomy? Well,
1: you know? I, I think being consistent with your own values is, is really important. You, you now have an opposition in Europe between Angela Merkel... Mm-hmm. And David Cameron. That's right. Uh, David Cameron comes to China. He doesn't mention. Human He's rights embarrassing, right? At I mean, all. <laughs> and,
0: and and Angela the, the Merkel. Mark Zuckerberg of England. Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Zuckerberg. I'm glad I got his name wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Angela Merkel. I mean, she's she's consistent with herself. You know, with her uh, East German past, and she's very much convinced about the importance of human rights. And despite all the importance. Germany attached to good economic relations with China, she always makes remarks about it.
2: And yet, efficacy for me seems like a a very important measure. I I I think that um, you know, it's one thing to you know be able to pat yourself on the back and say, you know, I stood up, that I you know I I I can look the the satisfying purity of indignation. That's what Obama called it. It's. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's 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 a yeah. it's it's there is something you know, but you know if if browbeating if that approach yields no results or uses, yields counter you know counterproductive uh, uh, Im, 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 impact, uh, is that the right thing? I mean, do we continue to do this? It's just
1: absolutely not. I I think you have to do it cleverly. I, I spoke to a very left wing green politician. Uh, in germany and and she she was very irritated by fellow politicians who just had these declarations about human rights in china all the time you know where she knew that the uh, because she knew something about china that she knew that the effect on the the people in prison was adverse so you it, it was it reflected good on the on the politician but not on the, right. on the prisoner
2: yeah, you use Ai Weiwei throughout the book as just sort of an example of one, one approach. Although, it's interesting to see how he is moderated recently, if, you, if, you've, if you've seen... Uh,
0: yeah, I suspect some kind of deal is struck there. I don't know why I, something happened behind <laughs> the scenes, I believe. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't really know, I don't really what, know I don't what happened. Know I, I have a, just a quick question that I don't want to get forget about. As a journalist, it seems like there's, there's a problem. A lot of what we're talking about is, is the domain of academia. These are things you write books about that are large in scope, historical scope. But as a journalist, you're dealing with isolated cases, you're dealing with uh, maybe even just incidents uh, that are only of current events, interest. You tell a story that's supposed to be mostly, you know, factual and get the story story out. There isn't much leeway to talk about these larger issues. How, How as a journalist do you or as a journalist should push back or try to present a more nuanced narrative in the context of journalism, knowing what we know about the fact that it's a market product, for example, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, the the nice thing about writing this book, I was not confined to any space, and uh, I could write uh, right. one hundred twenty. Well, you are writing meta journalism here, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, yeah. so um, that gave me a, a lot of liberty and also in-depth knowledge of of uh, the subject, and uh, I think that is really important, you know, for journalists uh, to to not just to produce this small story, but try to see the bigger picture. And and, um, I think then you get some kind of quality to your journalism, which you eventually need to get this better mutual understanding, which we we all crave for.
0: Can you only do that by building up a body of work, article after article, or is there some other way to accomplish this?
1: No, I think you have to do it that way. You have to specialize and consistently uh, devote your time to this particular subject and see it from all different angles. Mm. For instance, I just come from Korea, and you know the way they look at China is again different from mm. my European perspective. So. I understand it even you know we're better or differently again
2: is there a second book in the works now working looking at at southeast asia or 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 other east asian and southeast asian neighbors of china and how they view it
1: yeah i i don't know yet but i'm very happy that the first book is there so yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah. uh the other issue that i think maybe is um you know you you start off uh you know you, you 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 start here uh with asking the question about you know what what should then countries like the united states who should their uh, stance their posture toward china be more assertive be more aggressive tougher uh and in the end you kind of conclude that no it it, it, that kind of a a more uh a tough posture a, a tough stance you know by the u.s and its western allies would only increase chinese nationalism that would spark you know an actual second cold war um can you walk us through your thinking on that?
1: Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the the developments in recent years are quite negative in my view. If you compare it to w- when I started the research, the, there was the Hu Jintao and Jiabao uh, era, and relations were not very good, but not very bad either. And I think due to uh, the question of the Pacific and cybersecurity. Um, the whole espionage uh, thing. I mean, the tensions have increased. You see, increasing frustration, uh, even uh, with Obama, who, who was quite uh, balanced uh, for a long time, but m- now announcing TPP, he said that uh, it, it, it was also a move, you know, not to have a world where China uh, yeah. writes the rules. Uh, so, so um, the 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 tendency is going towards a more Containment of China and uh, Cold War uh, policy. And I think, that, you know, I can't see any advantage of that for both parties. I mean, first of all, and, and that was also one of the reasons to write the book, is, you know, we, we have some common problems which we, we have to solve. And the chance of, for instance, solving the climate crisis is, is becoming less if, if you have these two blocks uh, opposing each other. And um, secondly in the, in the in the economic uh, sphere i think uh there is very much in uh the, the inter- interdependency has grown all over the years so much that that uh you can't compare it to uh, the soviet union uh any longer uh you know the soviet union you could contain because uh economically y- y- you, know, you, you y- were not exactly not, uh, right. dependent and and now the U.S. and Europe would shoot in in their own foot in a very big way. That's right. If, if they start to contain China,
2: and yet containment is 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 part of the language with which uh, the Chinese foreign policy, the Chinese foreign policy community, and especially the Chinese military community sees a, a, American, especially American uh, action, they they posit that there is this sort of project of liberal hegemonism this attempt to to um, to thwart China's rise in some way. And I, I can't help but notice that, uh, I mean, again, this is this is me, you know, stepping out of my own value perspective and and, and trying to see how Beijing sees things through its window. Uh, that um, let's look. There there have been a lot of, of essays written recently about uh, the the Chinese. State and it stepped up repression. They, they look at you know this document number nine. They look at the the moves in recent years against uh, the the creep of Western values into uh, academia. They look at uh, the crackdown on NGOs and on rights lawyers and things like that. And often this is just explained uh, without reference to the external world, but only within the, the framework of Chinese politics. That this is a, a an increasingly paranoid increasingly uh insecure state and that its fear is of its own people where uh i think that the way that beijing would would frame this and i think that there's it's there's, it's not without some merit With this argument is not without entirely without merit that they would say look what's happening in in the world there, there is this project of liberal hegemonism it's not necessarily of the uh the um, neoconservative stripe of of overt you know Pre- preempt the preemption doctrine and and regime change per se but uh it's the left's counter to that it, it's the left's uh counterpart to that which is um you know using ngos using free press using internet freedom using all of these uh he these ping, tools he he yan, bian. Bian. but but it's it but it's but it's a more sinister version of right. that that culminates in like right mean things like the Arab Spring, they, they would see the Arab Spring as the, the culmination of this color revolutions, you know, prior to that. But I can't help but notice that between September 11th, 2001 uh, and 2008, there was this uh, period of a kind of of, of of very relaxed U.S.-China relations because, of course, the U.S. had enlisted China in this global war on terror and you know it had laid off and stopped and its focus was elsewhere and during that time internet censorship wasn't it was bad but not so bad there were you know NGOs didn't exactly flourish but they weren't suffering you know repression either uh, rights lawyers were able to do some of their work there and then you know the the chinese human rights record wasn't wasn't so bad uh I can't help but see these two things as somehow interlinked: uh, the foreign policy environment, the, the international environment, and it's not just a matter of, of increased swagger and bellicosity on the part of Beijing uh, that, that that stimulated this, but it's also things like you know the pivot to Asia. Mm-hmm. It's also this you know. Uh, so. I,
1: I, yeah. Well, it's 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 a very interesting analysis. I don't know whether cause and effect is is that right, clear hard to, hard to and and, and, part, and right. i i think if if you want to explain um the way the domestic situation has evolved uh, i don't know how important this this foreign context uh, really is I, I i would start uh by the person of xi jinping and 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 uh his wish that the party will survive uh and uh therefore the party has to have all the ground possible, and that the civil society uh should uh, decrease and uh, become less important I think that 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 is the for me that is the starting point, and then they can find arguments in these these uh external developments mm. uh, but uh i you know to my feeling it's 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 not the the essence of of uh, the last uh, three years okay
2: yeah, I, mean, uh, I think that. Yeah, I would say again. Oh. Xi
1: Jinping also seems does
0: seem to mark. It could be a coincidence, but he came around the same time post 2008, although a few years after that. It, it seems to me that this has become at least increasingly marked during Xi Jinping's regime, or if that's the right word.
2: Mm. Well, that's, that's a, a, a wonderful topic for another, <laughs> another, another, another podcast, but uh, we're uh, coming up here on, on time. I think it's probably, uh, time. Let's, let's, let's make sure that everyone knows the title of, of the book once again. Uh, it, it's, it's called China and the West, Hope and Fear in the Age of Asia by Foka Obema. Uh, and we want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on and now move on to our, you'll stay and, and make a recommendation with us, I hope. Uh, David, what is your recommendation for the week?
0: Yeah, uh, moving <laughs> to sort of a, a macro level from from the messy daily political situation to the sort of uh, looking at us as a human race. I've been reading uh, lately a book called Sapiens by someone named Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. And what it is is just the history of Homo sapiens. From the very beginning to the present time a very detailed and it's an evolutionary account obviously and uh taking to account the sorts of there's been a lot of interest lately because of this new discovery discovery of, of the homo and nalidi, n- or, whatever, n- 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 nalidi n- or whatever yeah yeah and also the homo florensis or whatever there's yeah. been several different types of homo was discovered in, yeah, in indonesia right. and but it's no, it's a very different it's a very interesting book that goes through the, the cognitive history to show how we developed some of these cognitive capabilities and including moral and um, social uh, characteristics of our particular species uh, I of love ape. this kind of book. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, this a, it's is, this a great th- book that very, uh, very much detailed, very chronological. And uh, if you're a political scientist, I think it's, makes it makes an interesting reading because it tells us more about the roots of these messy sort of human behaviors that we've been talking about.
2: Wow, great um and mm-hmm. you'll ma- you'll make sure that you ge- get our intern Ben the uh the correct spelling of this name That's the so problem that, yes right, right, right. <laughs> okay good. <great. laughs> foca what do you have for us
1: well the book i would recommend is is maybe an, a bit old one but i think for chinese readers still very interesting the circle by david eggers mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which i just read and um Uh, A couple of months later, I stumbled across a very interesting Chinese story, which is about the social credit system. Uh, I don't know whether you know about that. Yeah, of
2: course. I mean, we've been debating this hotly with a lot of people. Uh, I mean, because, you know, our our mutual friend, Rougier, I I keep saying his name. Kramer's. (laughs) Kramer's. sorry. Rougier Right, he, yeah, because because he wrote, you know, he translated that whole thing. I I think that there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what this actually is. Okay, but, but
1: uh, well, as far as I understand it, it's it's rating your behavior, uh, giving you a certain as as a c- uh, civilian a certain uh, number of points, and that would be then in, important for not only your credit but also for getting uh, housing, getting jobs, whatever. Uh, it's it's kind of Scary, and uh, uh, it gives you an idea of a, a totalitarian approach. But at the same time, it's interesting to see that in the West, you know, it's it's similar developments take place. It's on, only not with the state involved, but just companies. Well, the
2: thing is, we don't know that there's any state involvement in this. We have a document that uh, in, Roger, in China, you mean? Yeah, in China. We, yeah. we don't know that there's any state involvement. We know that there's this document. And we know that there are these s- systems that have been implemented by Alibaba and by Tencent, which may have nothing whatsoever to do w- w- with the other. There's no no, uh, there, there's no clear linkage between the two. Yeah. And okay. I, I mean, until somebody shows me evidence that there is, I, I, I'm not going to assume that there is. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, but, but it's it's I think it's a, it's an interesting story, and I'm going to continue to follow it closely.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway, to circle. The circle, right? Dave Eggers, right? Dave Eggers, who a staggering work,
2: a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, and uh, a number of other novels brilliant writer not kind of an uneven but but generally pretty pretty enjoyable writer for me yeah. and and the circle is about sort of a dystopian social network right? a, a google like yeah. yeah maybe i i really ought to read that right <laughs> oh, yeah absolutely laboring as i do in you the belly first reader of no it's been on my list for a long time i don't know how i haven't gotten around to it oh, but okay. i i have meant to read it um my recommendation also a book i mean we're all going with books this time but um Okay, so people who listen to this podcast know that I've been working my way through the Will and Ariel Durant uh, Story of Civilization series. And now I'm on volume 10, which is so far the best one. It's called Rousseau and Revolution. Uh, this one actually won a Pulitzer for general nonfiction by, you know, for Will and Ariel Durant. Uh, everyone's parents have these um, this, this, you know, this it, enormous, I yeah, 12, I think, 12-volume set uh it it's, it's 11 or 12 volumes but it's it's an amazing bit a piece of writing that that somebody could have sustained this level of of brilliance acro- across that many you know millions and millions of words uh it's the erudition the 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 the, the narrative style the 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 verve with which this is told um, you know, and this one covers basically you know the Saloniers, the Philosophes in, in 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 Paris in the mid eighteenth century. You know, it covers a lot of the same ground as, as chapter nine uh, of volume nine before it, which is the age of Voltaire. But this you know looks at Jean Jacques Rousseau, who I've come to have a an abiding loathing of. I really just <laughs> cannot stand the man um, or, or his works. You know, uh, but it also um, you know it's. It, it, Great we chapters on anyway. Frederick the Great. No, no, absolutely uh, no, because I think that that Rousseau is is so important to to who we are as people. I mean, you know, the, to uh, the, the, the the romantic uh, r- response to the Enlightenment. I think is is, is in- incredibly important. But it's it's uh, it's an amazing book. Um, you know, it it, it covers uh, the whole Catholic South. It covers the Islamic East. Uh, it it looks at, of course, all the countries of the Protestant North. And um, in the whole prelude up to 1789, uh, and so you're listening to it as an audiobook. I am right? listening to it that's, as an audiobook. That's
0: a, a lot of reading of millions and millions of words too.
2: It me. is. Uh, Stefan Rudnicki. Listen to his readings of it. He's I hope just. He has
0: a lot of supply of cough drops. He
2: does. I mean, he, I mean his voice yeah. is
0: great. It's
2: just his 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 ability to read, and I mean, his pronunciations of of uh, you know a lot of different languages of French and of Spanish and of. of, of are, are pretty admirable for somebody who's obviously you know a stolid American but um, great one I'm looking forward to the next one which is the age of Napoleon which I, I, I hope to as well so I, I like to read these um, in audio, in audio but uh, I'm uh, but also to, to have them in text so that I can kind of go back and forth between so if it's too noisy to listen like on a subway uh, I can read and if I if it's um, if I'm driving or if I'm in a, a cab I can listen. Or if I don't want to bother my wife at night with having a light on while I'm reading. Anyway, uh, thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks. It was a uh, great, great, great discussion, and uh, I highly recommend the book. Um, I think I have a copy of it; it's signed to, to me. But maybe we can finagle another copy of it to give away to one lucky reader if we can get you to, to, to part with one more co- copy. Will you assent to that, Foka? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Very good. So then we will. We'll. I'll, I'll announce some kind of contest-like device whereby we will reward somebody with a copy of this book. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.